We've been looking at this issue of spiritual formation. And as we are increasingly filled with God's presence, our values and our actions, we will come to look more and more like our Savior, Jesus. So that as Paul told the Galatians, Christ will be formed in us. As I mentioned last week, one way of looking at the spiritual life is to see it as like a river with at least six streams feeding into it. Each one adds to its strength and its fullness because each of us will have some streams we're more comfortable with than others. And some we're going to struggle with or may want to avoid. That's a temptation to stay only within the streams we feel most attuned But each one has its place and expression, and it's only when we take them together that we truly find the fullness Scripture talks about. The six key words I'm using to describe these various streams, in which we've started to put up artwork for, are compassion, holiness, prayer, the Word, the Spirit, and incarnation. Each stream is found within the wider community of faith and often will characterize how various groups and individuals express their spiritual lives. So some churches will be very socially active, involved in areas of compassion toward the poor. Others will seem focused highly upon prayer or cultivating the inner life. For others, it may be the role and activity of the Spirit that takes precedence. And for others, they focus on the Word and witness. But together, they reflect a great diversity of the Spirit and the strength of Christ's body. The first stream, which we started with last week, is compassion. I started with that one partly because as I think some of the questions I asked last week revealed, it is perhaps the most complicated and controversial of the six. Yeah, Melissa? (laughs) And because it's often associated with liberalism and concern about a purely social gospel, it's particularly a concern among conservatives and evangelicals. But if God is love as Scripture says, and we are to be transformed into His image, the issue of compassion seeks to answer the question, what does love look like and demand of us? And that includes how we treat others as individuals and as groups and society at large, and therefore the issues of justice and righteousness are central elements of compassion. And their major theme of the Old Testament prophets and their understanding of what it means to know and to serve God. Because the prophet Jeremiah said of King Josiah, he defended the cause of the poor and needy. And then it says, is that not what it means to know me? In Isaiah, God said, free those who are wrongly imprisoned, lighten the burden of those who work for you, let the oppressed go free, remove the chains that bind people, share your food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, give clothes to those who need them, and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then, it says, your salvation will come like the dawn. Or as James 1.27 says, pure and genuine religion 
in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. But Amos, perhaps more clearly and compellingly than all the prophets, represents this call for justice when he says, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And that's what we looked at last week. Justice and righteousness are expressions of compassion and their message of judgment was based on how people treated one another. In fact, as I mentioned last week, in the Hebrew, the words for judgment and justice have the same root. And as I also mentioned, today we are continuing to look at compassion, but we're looking at it at the life of Jesus. Because I don't believe you can take an honest look at the New Testament, and especially at the life and teachings of our Lord, without being confronted by the importance of compassion as it relates to our spiritual formation. If we're going to look like Jesus, which is the goal of spiritual formation, we care about the things he cares about. And scripture makes it very clear that he cares about the poor and the hurting and the outsiders and the needy. There's a couple named Jean and Helen Tabor, or he passed away. But a number of years ago, they traveled to the Philippines with a Christian evangelistic ministry. When they got there, they started helping Filipinos develop small self-supporting farming and business operations. He thought especially that it was important to minister to the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs of the people there. But apparently his mission organization didn't agree, saying that he was wasting valuable time that could be spent on evangelism. So they gave him an ultimatum, stop helping the poor or quit. He understood that authentic faith demanded caring for the poor, so he quit. And he started his own work. It's called Reach Ministries. And after the first 25 years, over 20,000 people had given their lives to Christ in 21 sites throughout the Philippines, India, and Hong Kong through the work of compassion and witness working together. And they would be the first to tell you it was due to them complementing each other. Because of their faith, they cared and it showed. Now I wish that Tabor's experience was uncommon, but unfortunately it's really not. There has become this false dichotomy that many have drawn between evangelism and ministry, between addressing spiritual needs and physical ones, that view them almost in competition when it comes to resources like time and money. It sees caring for the needs of the poor as taking away from God's kingdom. But from the very beginning, the church has grown when the world at large saw people who cared. You know, after watching the Salvation Army lead several other faith-based organizations in their relief effort after Hurricane Katrina, in England, the outspoken atheist, politician, journalist, Roy Hattersley, shocked his readers when he wrote in his column for the UK Guardian, which is one of the largest newspapers in England, It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. But notable by their absence were teams from rationalist societies, free thinker clubs, and atheist associations, the sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. 
But, he added, it's an unavoidable conclusion that Christians are the people most likely to take risks and make the sacrifice involved in helping others. And he noted that that pattern goes beyond disaster relief. He said, civilized people, people do not believe that drug addiction and male prostitutions offend against a higher ordinance. But those who do, speaking of Christians, are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages, replace the sodden sleeping bags, and probably most difficult of all, argue without a trace of impatience that the time has come for some serious medical treatment. The only possible conclusion, says Hattersley, is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make Christians morally superior to atheists like me. In other words, he's saying he realizes that compassion and caring are a part of spiritual formation. They're evidence of the truth of Jesus' words in John 13, 35, when he say, the way the world is going to know that you're my follower is not how well you can quote the Bible, it's not how often you go to church, what you do, how much you give, or how often you pray, but he said, the world's going to know you're my followers by the love you can show for one another. By caring, we look like him. That's why the compassionate life is among the streams of the spiritual formation. And while the greatest need anyone has is spiritual, the gospel doesn't excuse us from caring for people in need. It shows how we, it is how we show whether our love is real or whether it's just something we talk about. In John, 1 John 3, John wrote, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity, no compassion, the New American Standard, which is a more literal translation, reads, closes his heart against others. How can they claim to have God in their hearts? He then goes on to say, dear children, let us not just love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John's also the one who wrote, that we shouldn't even bother saying we love God if we don't care about or love our brother. It has to be made concrete. Otherwise, it's just words. And people do not care what we know if they don't know that we care. In Matthew 10, it records the time when Jesus, or when John, or sorry, Jesus, sent out his disciples on a mission to preach the message of the coming kingdom. And in the midst of his instructions on what to say and do when they go out, he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons, show compassion. And in Luke 7, it records the time when John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent his disciples to Jesus to find out, was he really the coming Messiah, or should they keep looking for someone else? And what Jesus did not say was, look at our new building that we put up. Or see the crowds that are gathering to listen to me. Or how many have been enrolled in my Sunday school. Or how many baptisms we've had. Or how big the offerings are. That's what the world looks at. Too often that's what the church looks at as proof that God is active and blessing. Instead, in verse 22, Jesus said, Go back and tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight the lame walk, 
those who have leprosy are, cur are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. He's pointing to ministry. What do we look for as evidence of God's working? But the passage I most want to focus on is in Luke chapter 4. It's at toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it's here that Jesus himself defines his ministry and his purpose. He went back to Nazareth, his hometown, and on the Sabbath day, the scripture says, he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up and was asked to speak. He was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled it to the place he was looking for in the 61st chapter. And he read, and here I'm going to read Isaiah's words rather than Luke's summary of it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of the righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then the scripture says in Luke 4, he rolled up the scroll he gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and while the every, eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him, he began by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying that scripture is talking about me. It's about what I'm here for. I'm the one who's going to do this. I'm the one who's going to bring this to pass. God has anointed or chosen or set me apart. He's assigned me the task to preach good news to the poor. The word, word poor here means someone who cowers or crouches, who's hiding out of fear, out of powerlessness, out of poverty. And Jesus said he came to offer hope to those who need to hear good news. And who needs it more than those? If you look at his life, that's just what he did when he was traveling through the countryside and he comes to a Samaritan town and he goes to the well and he sits there and a Samaritan woman comes out to him. A woman who had had five husbands and was living with another. And before Jesus came, she had no future in that society. She was powerless. And yet Jesus offered her hope. Or when he reached out to the spiritually impoverished Zacchaeus, hanging from a tree, hated by his own people as a collaborator, he lived in constant fear of his neighbors and what they might do to him if they caught him alone. Or when he saw the great crowd, and Mark says he had compassion on them because he realized they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he fed them. And he did it when he stopped and touched the leper. People who literally lived on the edge of society, outcast from everyone, even their own families. He came and he preached news to those who needed hope. Good news that while the world may despise and reject you, let them know that God loved them. He said he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. That's a word used to describe those who have been crushed who've been shattered, ground to dust. Life had broken them down. 
And Jesus said he came to heal them, just as he did with the mother whose son had died in Luke 17. And he restored life. Or as he did with Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died, and he called him out of the tomb and restored him in John 11. As he did with Jairus when he brought his daughter back from the dead in Mark 5. In their pain and their brokenness of life, they found healing and hope. He was sent to proclaim freedom, deliverance to those who are captive, it says. And so he sent a deaf mute and healed him in Mark 7. He set free a woman caught in adultery in John 8. He set free the woman who suffered from bleeding for 12 years in Mark 5. And he set free a man that we know as Legion in Mark 5, possessed by a multitude of demons. He said he was sent to bring recovery of sight to those who are both physically and spiritually blind. And so he speaks to Nicodemus one of the religious leaders proclaiming that in him the light has come into the world. To a man born blind in Mark 8, he's brought to Jesus and goes away seeing. To blind Bartimaeus as he sat along the road out of Jericho in Mark 10, he cries out to Jesus for pity and Jesus hears him and responds. And it says he was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn and provide hope for those who grieve. So he healed the sick. He set free a Syrophoenician woman's daughter in Mark 7. He not just healed, but he forgave a paralytic whose four friends lowered him in a mat through a roof in Mark 2. So in Isaiah 61, the passage says he gives a crown of beauty instead of ashes oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. From the very beginning of his life and ministry, Jesus' work was defined and described in terms of compassion, a compassionate life as compared to a rigid legalism of following rules of the religion of his day. And what made Jesus so upset when he went into the temple, that he turned over the tables and he made a whip to drive people out, it was because of the injustice was being done there. The people were being oppressed and abused in the very place they should have found peace and hope. Pastor Mark Buchanan wrote that he once was asked to speak to a group of young people and he asked them to define a Christian. He said, here's what they said. A Christian is someone who doesn't smoke, doesn't drink or do drugs, doesn't have sex until marriage, doesn't use bad language. Of course, I'm not suggesting a a Christian does any of these things, but it's tragic that when we instinctively define a Christian by what they are not, by what they avoid... It's like being asked to draw a picture of someone and instead drawing everything around the person and leaving the portrait blank. In saying what Christians are not, we merely sketch the air around them. But Christ, he said, never did that. In Matthew 25, Christ regnant or reigning and fierce divides sheep from goats. How does he tell them apart? How does he separate true followers from false ones? He does not identify his disciples of those who didn't drink and didn't chew and didn't go out with girls who do. What he says is, you are my disciple if I came to you naked and you clothed me, came to you hungry and you fed me, was in prison 
and you visited me. We are known by our fruits, not by our lack of tree fungus or leaf rot. If we're going to look like Jesus, we come to care about what he cares about. And he cares about people. Because ultimately, it is that caring, that compassion for the poor and the hurting, for the outcasts and the alienated that led him to the greatest act of compassion at all. It was his compassion that led him to Calvary, to the cross, where he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin and death. Compassion is why we take an offering every October for world hunger. And when disaster strikes somewhere in the world, why we take special offerings for disaster relief. Compassion is seen by those who go to Ann Pearl to visit those who sometimes are forgotten by society. The ways it's demonstrated are virtually limitless. But ultimately, compassion, a compassionate life, is not particular actions, something we do when the mood strikes us. It's an orientation of life, caring for others, especially those who may be hurting or poor or needy, who are crushed and broken by the injustice around us. And that's what sets most forms of modern spirituality apart from spiritual formation into the image of Christ. You know, modern spirituality, if you read those who write about it, is most often understood as a process where we're searching to find ourselves, where we're seeking inner peace and contentment. It's that inner gaze. But in contrast, Jesus said, if you want to find yourself, give yourself away. William Barclay said, real religion draws strength from God in order to give it to others. Real religion involves both meeting God in a secret place and men in the marketplace. And as we go through spiritual formation, becoming more like him, we care about what he cares about. You know, back in the 90s, it was the time where Dr. Kevorkian was in the news constantly going from state to state helping people commit suicide. He justified what he did being done all in the name of compassion. When he went to the city of Detroit, he found very strong opposition there from the Archbishop, Cardinal Maeda. Kevorkian's lawyers snapped at him and said, put up or shut up accusing the church being nothing but empty words. Maeda met their challenge head-on when he put the assets of the archdiocese up to help people in crisis who might otherwise seek the services of the man who became known as Dr. Death. On the very day that Kevorkian was helping his 33rd victim commit suicide, Cardinal Maeda made a startling announcement. He said he would do whatever it takes to provide alternatives for people considering suicide or abortion, and he pledged the funds of the archdiocese to make good on that promise. He offered to pay the medical bills for the terminally ill and for pregnant women considering alternatives to abortion. He mobilized 30 agencies, including hospices and counseling centers, to help him keep his promise, saying, before you pick up that telephone to schedule an abortion or a consultation with Jack Kevorkian, call Project Life. He told the people of Detroit, there are options and people who care. 
Kevorkian and his supporters sneered at Project Life, calling it nothing but a publicity gimmick. But the sick and the suffering of Detroit took the Cardinal at his word. More than 600 people called Project Life hotline in its first few months. Depressed people, thinking of killing themselves, received counseling and medical care. Women, considering abortion, made adoption plans instead. People suffering terminal illnesses were referred to hospices for long-term care. And according to a news article in the Detroit News on July 10, 1996, even Detroit residents who did not call the hotline were given something as well. A lesson in true Christian compassion. Cardinal Maeda, the article said, wasn't just putting his dollars where his doctrine was. He was reminding a confused world what real compassion looks like. Charles Colson said that euthanasia groups claim that when people are suffering, helping them kill themselves is the only compassionate response. In the same way, the abortion lobby says that abortion is the compassionate choice for babies that are unwanted. But Colson says these definitions are cheap substitutes for the real things. It's easy to hook up a terminally ill man to an IV full of lethal drugs. Real compassion, he says, is caring for him for months or even years. And, as Mother Teresa put it so well, letting him see Jesus in the midst of his suffering. And he said it's easy to spend 10 minutes aborting the baby of a desperate teenager. Real compassion is assessing that teen through nine months of pregnancy and helping her after the baby's birth, or supporting her through the process of putting up the baby for adoption. It wasn't just words, in other words. Compassionate life is a demonstrated life. It reveals whether we really believe what we say in the realm of personal faith, and whether we care more than about our own personal holiness. Let me close with one more illustration. This one is an excerpt, an actual excerpt, taken from a letter written by a missionary couple in Brazil. They said, Driving through the Christmas traffic, fighting the drizzling rain, I chanced on a four-year-old little girl. She was wet and cold and shaking. Her clothes were ragged, her hair was matted, and her nose was running. She walked between the cars at the stoplight, washing headlights because she was too short to wash windshields. A few gave her coins. Others honked at her to get her away from their cars. As I drove away, only some 50 cents poorer, I raged at God for the injustice in the world that allowed the situation. God, how could you stand by helpless? Later that evening, God came to me softly with that still small voice and responded, not in like kind to my rage, but with the tenderness. I have done something, he said. I created you. That's compassionate life. Father, help us to become more like Jesus, formed into his image that we might be a people who are compassionate and caring to those who may be less fortunate, who may be hurting, who may be lost. Not just physically, but spiritually. Because as we share with them, we are demonstrating your compassion and care that we may reflect the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.